and welcome to Emma's podcast. In today's podcast, I have somebody that really intrigued me. Plus, I am a fan of one thing on the top of it, too. So, <laughs> right, and I'm like, holy crap, I'm with James Riordan. And okay, so you're the author of 45 books. Uh, and yeah. your career began in a music industry where you were a songwriter, a manager, a producer constant promoters, Holy Molly. And in 76, you began writing a newspaper column on popular music, rock pop, uh, which you were later syndicated, my goodness. And you did so many things that, uh, you know, you interview one-on-one, lead interview with George Harrison, Bob Dylan, Fleetwood Mac, Frank Zappa, which is like, oh my God, Crosby, Steele and Nash. Uh, and you did something else that really stopped me. It's like, oh my God, because I saw the movie actually, and uh, uh, Jim Morrison. And yes. you were actually uh, with Oliver Stone on the mm -hmm. set, and you basically were behind the scene on that movie as well, which to me is amazing. It's one of the best movie ever. Give me the goosebumps from the beginning to end so empowering so beautiful it, it's uh, i think it's gonna stay an icon for the movies especially i love uh jim morrison my uncle had a lot of uh um a song uh and you know the vinyl of the doors uh -huh. so me when i saw the movie it was just like bringing me back in time when in the late 70s my uncle used to play <laughs> those yeah. musics. So you work uh, on the doors, yeah, and it's an amazing um, movie. Uh, you have done so many things through your career. It's like I will spend hours just talk about it. But my first question for you is, how did you get it started? And what inspired you to start with the music industries first? Uh, because I'm curious to know how you got there. Well, you know, I uh, uh, I think I had been writing ever since I was a kid, but I didn't really refer to it. My parents thought I was going to be an artist because I was drawing pictures all the time, but they were like, they were the way I was communicating stories. They were always part of a story and they thought, oh, he's going to be an artist, but that's actually, I wasn't focused on detail like an artist would. I was just focusing on the story, you know? And uh, uh, by the time I, uh, I was, I started working with bands. My, my dad used to be a drummer and my family was always involved in music. And I was a drummer originally. Uh, and then I got into booking bands and writing songs. And then we went to Nashville. And then when I moved to Nashville, I was a songwriter for years. Mostly, you know, I'd write the lyrics, other people would write the music. And so that came first. And it really wasn't until, I, I mean, while I was doing that, I, I wrote things like for the Nashville Rock and Roll newspaper, you know, I, I, they'd say, well, uh, I try to get them to do a story on my band, which was called Hope. And they'd say, well, would you, uh, we'd like you to cover us the Led Zeppelin concert, write about that. And I'd be like, okay, you know, so if they would do a story on my band if I'd go write about Led Zeppelin. And so those things were sort of byproducts I was writing. And then uh, one day it was like a, uh, there was a 
a new newspaper that was starting up and it was like my wife was like well maybe uh you should go over there and see if you could write for them, you know and i went over there and i had a lot of sales experience and of course newspapers really carry about ads ad sales especially when they're starting out so they said well we'll we'll give you a whole page you can sell the ads on it so then i said okay so i had i started reviewing records doing interviews doing and it, you know it was a really small time but because it was a a full page it got noticed from the publicists and you know the rock and roll people and so i started getting inter interview invitations to you know meet with different bands and it get, kept getting bigger and bigger and then one day i was invited to dinner with george harrison and it was like so then I took those things and started sending them to other papers and other papers started picking up on them. And then pretty soon it was syndicated all over. And uh, and then then when we moved to L.A., then I started working more on books and things like that. But, you know, for a long time, it was like I, I think I was reluctant to, to say I mean, I could. To say you're a writer, like you're writing for magazines and stuff is one thing, but to say you're an author, it's huh. sort of requires an arrogance. And, you know, where I grew up in the Midwest, I didn't know anybody in Kankakee, small town in the Midwest. I didn't know any authors. I didn't know any any serious rock and roll writers or writers. You know, it was like it's kind of you know, in L.A., you connect with all of those people. and It's more natural. You know, you're you're you don't have this. Uh, validation process that you have to yep. go through if you're from somewhere else mm -hmm. mentality I mean, you know because maybe your father you know your uncle mows uh jimmy buffett's lawn or uh yep. you know robert downey's or something and so you know okay you know those people are real but when you're in a yep. small town in the midwest you've never seen them and so nope. it's it's a it's a strange process you know and then uh, after that started working out and then well i started doing more stuff in in doing i wrote a book about the music business uh the platinum rainbow how to succeed in the music business without selling your soul which was with bob monaco who produced three dog night and rufus and it was and really telling about the stuff that you didn't want to do and or yeah. mistakes you made because people mm -hmm. people would never tell you the truth you know they oh. would tell you uh, uh they'd be like uh It'd be Kenny Rogers' story, or it'd be, you know, how this person, an individual story. But they, ne there were no books that told you when you were being lied to or when you were lying to yourself, you know. And so you could waste years in the music business knocking around and not have a clue, you know. So Bob and I tried to remedy that, and we made it funny. And because we made it funny, I mean, musicians picked up on it a lot. And uh, that was my first really successful book. So it, after that, then it was like, uh, at, in you know, they just came in the, in the chain after the like, because I worked with Oliver Stone on uh, in the Doors and I knew him. Then I wrote his biography, you know. So mm -hmm. there was, which in that involved in interviewing Tom Cruise and Michael Douglas and all all those kinds of things. And so it was just like one another, you know. I, I try to do things that have a, um, uh, I don't want to do the same thing over and over. Yeah. You know? And it's they they try to typecast you uh, if you're anything you're successful and they try to get you to repeat that. So yes. they wanted me to do another version of the Platinum Rainbow after that. Well, I didn't want to do that. And then after after the Morrison book, they were like, okay, how about Led Zeppelin? And I was like, no, I I just did Jim 
spent three and a half years doing Jim Morrison. I'm not jumping in, not doing Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and so then it was That's like, funny. yeah. And then after I did the Oliver Stone book, they were like, okay, so Francis Ford Coppola. And I'm like, no, I'm not, not going to be the director guy either. You know, I wanted to do things that were different, you know? And uh, it took, I, you know, I mean, it's probably easier if you just do what they, the agents and the people tell you what to do. But, you know, I've been able to establish a career where I do a lot of different things. So I'm glad. I think, I think diversity brings more who you truly are than trying to repeat the same thing. For me, it's like right. one trick pony doesn't work because you got so many dimensions of what you do. So why did you decide to move from Nashville to LA? What what brought you back, you know, going over there? Was it because you wanted well, more exposure? The, or? Well, I think, you know, I grew up in Illinois. Then mm -hmm. I think the reason we moved to Nashville uh, was, you know, there was music and stuff that, you know, we were really about, it was all about the band in those days. But when it comes down to it, I think it was because yeah, we could drive there. We could drive home, you know, if it didn't work out. And it was like... <laughs> <laughs> it's just I love really it. when you're That's talking safe. about you know two years of your life three years of your life it's like oh yeah well we can uh, we can drive yeah. there and after that i came back to kankakee i started working in radio and then i started selling the, the column and doing stuff like that and then it was like then it was like la we really should have been the kind of band we had we should have been in la in the beginning but you know you don't know those things when you're when you're when you're doing them you know so so you took your band to LA with you? You you're in No, I took my band to uh, to Nashville. Yeah. And then later, um, years after that band broke up, by, by then I'd become a writer and was writing a column and doing that stuff. And that was when I moved to LA. You know. Uh, so, did you miss your band, or have you done something uh, on the side you know, with music? It's a. Uh, it was the kind of thing where I mean, I formed a band a new band years later, 20 years later, Hip Noises, and we did an album and played around a little bit, you know, but it was like, uh, it was, I don't miss the, the band life, you know, uh, what I enjoyed doing most was like, uh, you know, writing songs and then getting them to a level where they were, you could, you know, they were you developed them enough, recorded them, and then maybe performing them live. But it really was developing the material. And now I'm doing that. Um, I'm writing with uh, uh, Mark Haber. He's a guy out of Chicago who's been. Uh, uh, he was part of the. Uh, uh, oh, I'm blanking out. But anyway, he's been. He's yeah. So. <laughs> He's it's early morning. <laughs> yeah, he's done some. He's uh, and so we're writing, and uh, it's kind of, you know I have a th thing in a platinum rainbow a thing, uh, which is everybody wants to be Steely Dan, which is like because yeah, oh you write and develop stuff, and then you don't have yep. to tour if you don't want to, and yep. and that's a lot. That's a lot more fun, you know, uh, in that sense. And so uh, I've been doing doing that more now and. That kind of satisfies all my my music stuff. Plus, I can always go down. Uh, you know, I'm friends with a lot of bands, so I can always go down and sit in and sing somewhere. You know, 
there's nice jam night come down and sing yep. uh, all along the watchtower or something and that'll get it out of my system you know it's like Good. hey that was a great time everything's great you go home <laughs> no hassle you don't have to deal with the bass player's wife there's no that's no nothing <laughs> none of the negatives of being it. in a band yeah <laughs> You come in and out and like, I'm done. I got my fix. Now I can go home and just do something yeah. else. Yeah. So what uh, the question I have for you is what inspired you to uh, write that biography about Jim Morrison? What really got you started to do that? Well, you know, and uh, it's interesting because lots of times uh, I feel God leads me in the situations that I wouldn't normally go in. You know, uh, I am a born again Christian, but I, I feel lots of times that doors open. I feel that doors close. Sometimes I have blinders on and I can only see what I want right now. And that door has to shut. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it, it was in, in the case of uh, of that, I was I was writing oh. with Jason Miller. And we were writing uh, a miniseries, wrote a miniseries for CBS called The Irish. And I was, and mostly what I was doing was ghost writing because Jason and I had been working together for years and he was a great writer. He was, he wrote that championship season, which was one of Pulitzer Prize play and stuff. But he also, uh, he was a young priest in The Exorcist. That's how a lot of people would remember him, Jason Miller. And so as a, he's an actor. Yeah. So, yeah, I have a wide range. Of I know, it's so funny. Jason, it's like, hey. <laughs> so we started writing. I was writing with him and a deal, uh, kind of banking on a deal that CBS had hired us. And we wrote a rewrote the what's called a story Bible for this miniseries. But then Jason got into a clash with them. You know, he was drinking a lot then. And so they didn't want him to direct the miniseries. And he did. He wanted to direct the miniseries. I just write it. And so they, they pulled the plug. Well, when they pulled the plug, uh, I was totally stuck. Now we had an offer for a novel, but now it's a lot of times when you deal with, uh, well, let's say actors or big rock stars or whatever, they're fine, but they, they, may, ha they may have their issue. Maybe drugs, maybe alcohol, maybe women, whatever it is, they have an issue and if that issue is covered, they're okay. But when things get tight, like the record deal gets pulled or the finances get screwed up, then they do what they got to do to survive, which includes preserving their issue. So in Jason's case, he moved to Scranton and he took the money from the book deal, which was actually supposed to go to me and worked on the, on the, uh, on the Irish from that same point, the miniseries, because the original deal was he would get the, the miniseries money and I would get the book deal. Well, so I was in a, I was in a messed up place and financially really, and it went, it wasn't because it was just, it was because of the disease of alcoholism with him really was the issue. I mean, you know, he was a great friend to me, but that's what happens. And so I actually went to the LA one ends and looked under writer and you never, you just don't do that. I mean, you know, who does that? You know, it's like, I mean, and in there, who would place this kind of ad was an ad said, want a writer to collaborate on biography of Jim Morrison. And I was like, who would put that in the LA Times? You get like a billion people, yeah. you know? It's like, I mean, that's Morrison Land. That's where he, yeah. you know? And it's how I was like, but this is another thing where God isolated 
the situations in order to bring Jerry Pernicki and I together. I called him up. He'd read my book, The Platinum Rainbow. It was like, you know, okay, well, I'm in real financial trouble. Can, you know, we work some kind of deal. We can do it. Yeah, all right. We were able to work that out. And, and that's how that started. I mean, it's like I was looking at a scrapbook the other day. It had that little original little one and add in there. And I remember going down to see him in uh, in Hollywood the first time to meet him, right? And, uh, you know, I was known. I, you know, I needed and I was in desperate financial situations. We worked out a thing. I'm coming down there to see him. And uh, so I said, well, I have to have this much up front. And it's like, okay, you know, and, and I don't know how familiar you are with Hollywood, but Hollywood is, you know, it's been decadent and screwed up for years. The actual streets, Hollywood and Vine and those streets, they're, you know, like, like tourist things, but they're not neighborhoods you want to hang around in, right? You know, and so, and there's certainly not neighborhoods we want to benefit bag full of cash too so he's like well let's meet at the burger king on uh on hollywood boulevard and i was like really so we go down there and i see this kind of geeky looking guy you know stand there with a, a paper sack in front of burger king and there's all these street people and strange looking dangerous people walking by in the street and i'm like surely he doesn't so he doesn't have that money in cash i thought he'd be giving it in a in that paper bag out here and it was like, yeah, here we did. Signed, there you go. And there it is. You know, and it was like, <laughs> it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I knew it was going to be right. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, he was the best possible partner I could have because he had every scrap of information ever written or any. He had, he would right away write to like radio stations in germany that interviewed the doors and a lot of it was in you know in german and he would get the transcripts and hand them translated into english and it was like and that he was doing he was doing that on his own he wasn't writing a book he was just doing it because mm -hmm. he was like the keeper of of all that in his mind yeah. and so he had all of that stuff when i met him and uh they it was a tremendous amount of research so we're listed co-authors i mean i wrote everything but it's like he was such a valuable, you know, contribution to the book because he had all this stuff. So that's that's how that one came about. So and then uh, we worked on that for a couple of years and then it did pretty well. Plus, I, you know, I interviewed like 40 people. So and then when I did the stone book, I interviewed like 50 people and they were people like Tom Cruise, Michael Douglas, you know, Kevin Costner, uh, you know, all down the line. So they cooperated because Oliver said cooperate. You yeah. Know? And, but even if Tom Cruise is co cooperating, you don't get him in a phone call. You know, it's 10 phone calls with a publicist and to this and to this and to that. And then finally you get it up and then finally it's set up where you talk to Tom. So it's complicated, you know. That's that's very that's interesting. I'm just fascinated, but so what got you started with Oliver Stone? Why did you pick Oliver Stone and not somebody else's? Well, uh, well, first was because he did the movie The Doors. So I was a consultant on The Doors and he based a lot of it on my book. He has officially it's based on the books that the other Doors did, because if he didn't base it on there, he wouldn't have got the rights to the music and he had to have yeah. the rights to the music. But unofficially, it's based on my book and 
you can tell. You know, I mean, it's, everybody knows it's from my book. So uh, I got a relationship with him. And the thing about Oliver is the best performances, almost if you trace the actors he's worked with, well, Michael Douglas, best performance, Wall Street. Tom Cruise, Born on the Fourth of July. Val Kilmer, The Doors. You know, Kevin Costner, JFK. I mean, you can you can go go down the line, and almost always he gets the best performance out of everybody. And he's if I have a, uh, a similarities in the books, the biographies that I've written, it's that they are maverick people who succeeded in spite of being rebels. Morrison. Yes. Oliver Stone. Yeah. The book I wrote after that was John Ruciana about who uh, uh, was a victim, but also a leader in overcoming the uh, uh, genocide in Rwanda. And mm -hmm. it was like, he's a clergy, but he's a radical. You know, I mean, it was like yeah. guys like that, you know, and th those people fascinate me. You know, After Oliver, I actually wanted to do Robin Williams, but couldn't couldn't nail that one down at that time so you know so i kind of follow a path this you know as it opens up you know? no and it's nice because i see the i see the diversity but i like the the fact that you like you said uh your managers everybody wants you follow the same path for the success which is you know redundant nothing exciting you went into a different path and you pick and choose uh, it's very interesting that you did not follow what they were saying, but you just pick and choose what fits at the moment it fits and see perfect synchronicity working at its best, like telling the story that I'm yelling in the newspaper, you see the thing for Jim Morrison. You know what? You cannot get it any better than that. When you talk about perfect yeah. synchronicity, you're in need of money and like universe is like, yeah, well, look at the page right here. This is for you. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. amazing. I don't know if you realize that or every time you, you pick and choose the people, it's very interesting how it happened. It's fascinating. Right. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, and it's like I have a, uh, I have a choice in it, but a lot of times it's kind of following the path the universe lays out. You know, a lot of these things are, well, you know, I, I uh, I wouldn't have picked Morrison had not that situation been there. I liked Morrison, but I just would have thought I didn't understand. First of all, until I read Sam's research, I didn't realize all the things about shamanism and mysticism and all the other stuff that made Morrison fascinating. You know, yes. So that, even at the beginning know. of the movie, at the beginning yeah. of the movie, when you see him as a kid in that car, to me, it's yeah. like oh, it's yeah. amazing. It's amazing to see, and um, that was Meg Ryan in the movie too, but Val Kimmer for me was like the embodiment of him. It was like, oh my God, he's back, he's alive. It was amazing the work Val Kimmer did. He felt more he was Jim Morrison than Val Kimmer. He's like, Val Kimmer wasn't in his body. He was Jim Morrison. Yeah, it was amazing, it was amazing you know? And uh, I almost didn't have Val in the book because Val and Oliver got into a big disagreement at the end of the doors because Val Morrison was a wild Irishman, okay? Which, I yeah. mean, you know, he had a lot of drive and strength and personal mm -hmm. power, okay? Um, Val's kind of laid back by nature. He's like, a, and he, he grew up reasonably wealthy, 
you know, so he didn't have that kind of drive. Well, but when they made the movie, Oliver pushed him so hard, pushed him, you know, I mean, because he was doing the vocals and he was doing this and he was doing, yeah. and, you know, and he just drove him so hard that by the time it came to the, the, uh, the rap party, Val went up to him and he said, well, I don't think you know how to work with actors at all. And, and, uh, Oliver's like, I think so, huh? you know? And so, so then when it came to doing the book, Val wouldn't talk to me, you know, so he wouldn't. And Oliver's like, I don't care if he talks or not. So I had all the previous interviews that Val had done when the movie came out. And I took all this material from that. All right. Which is what you do when you can't get somebody to interview for. And I had interviewed everyone else. So I had the book all put together. Well, meanwhile, Val's living in Paris and he's getting all people telling him how great the doors were. Because, of course, Morrison's a big thing in Paris, too. And oh, finally, yes. yeah, he calls Oliver and he goes, yeah, Val Kilmer. And he goes, you know, I'm sorry for what I said at the cast party. Uh, people have convinced me that was my best performance. And it is, you know, and he's like, and so Oliver being the way Oliver thinks is, why don't you call Jim Reardon and tell him that so it's in the book. <laughs> no, so, that's awesome. I don't want even, I don't want to, I've already got that section done. Yeah. So I don't want to change, it, you know, so I don't, and I'm also pretty fed up dealing with actors and egos by this time, you know. So he calls, my wife talks to him, he's in Paris, and I'm like, I'm not, I can't talk to him. And I, so I just blew it up, calls again, blew it up. And then Val, my, Debbie would tell me, Val Kilmer called from Paris again today. He's really nice. And I'd be, <laughs> I was like, so finally I said, you know, because I meant, it meant a lot of work for me to redo it and put it, to put his new quotes, because I knew I'd get new information out of him. That's what I do, you know, and I'd have to rewrite all those formula quotes that were in there. So, I said, all right, tell him if he calls, you know, Thursday at two o'clock, you know, I'll talk to him. And you, you, actors never do that. You know, if you tell them to do something at a certain time, they never do. It. It's just the way they are. And so I'm like, he ain't going to call. But he did. There we go. And so I interviewed him. He was great. And I rewrote all the quotes and put them in there. And we got some some great quotes. And I got it. I think Bell's great. I saw him at the airport not too long ago. You know, it's just like. You know, he, he's, he's a cool person, and, of course, that performance is legendary, you know. Oh, but it, it's funny it, how it comes out. It's so funny. It is so funny to hear that. That's hilarious. But, yeah, it might not at that time felt, you know, I think Oliver Stone, like you, they ha you guys have the gift to be able to really get into and push and get information that probably most people will not all performances in the guests of Oliver Stone able to bring out the of the actors and yes yeah, yeah. it's not easy to get that performance but he was able to push him where he needed to be because i believe if he did not that movie would have not been what no. it is at all no no it, you, you know you know and uh, oliver's really good at that and a lot of stuff that comes from me when i interview people is you don't just sit down and ask them the five key questions, you know, in that, I mean, on interviews like this, when you're limited and then you're on Zoom or something, you have to. But but basically, I would talk, like like with Tom Cruise, you know, you got to find a common point. Yes. And it's like, when I was interviewing Tom Cruise, it's like, well, what's our common point? Do we, you know, am I getting $20 million as a project? No. Am I getting hordes of teenage girls chasing me down the street? 
sometimes, but no, no. <laughs> and it's like, so, so yeah. So what am I, uh, but I found out that Tom was, uh, thought he was going to be an athlete because he was, you know, he's not that tall, but he was that height when he was in eighth grade. So he was the star in all these various sports, but he stopped growing in eighth grade. Yeah. Well, I was this height when I was in eighth grade and I thought I was going to play basketball, do all this. And I played all these sports. So we talked about the frustrations of thinking you're going to be a great, you know, athlete and what you have to adapt to. We talked about that for 20 minutes. None of that is in the book. None of that relates to this, what we're talking about in the book, but that's where the rapport was built. You know, we, cause we common, yeah, we bonded over that. Right. You know, and then, uh, then the interview was way more in depth. So. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's not. And yeah, he opened up to you and really connected with you, which is fantastic. I think it's great. So you have interviewed so many people. Which one uh, do you want to still interview or do you have somebody in your list you have not interviewed yet? Well, when it comes to you know, movie stars, it changes all the time. So there's new yes. there's the, the new people you know, and, and people that are, are popular in that, but of, uh, of people in the, in the, in the past, you know, I, uh, I never interviewed, uh, uh, Jeff Bridges. I think Jeff Bridges does. I, I like his work a lot, but it's, it's never been an occasion to interview him. I'd like to interview him. Uh, and, some of the newer people uh, I, I like, uh, I have a little trouble remembering their name, but you know, there's, there's a few of the new people who are always the, you know, popular ones I like. Um, but I think Bridges from acting and I think from, from music, uh, Mick Jagger, I never talked to him. I've never interviewed Mick Jagger. So, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I, you kind of know you interview enough people like that you kind of know but you know those are people i didn't i mean it for a long time for me it would have been dylan but i did interview dylan so you know after, after i met dylan and the beatles i would have loved to have interviewed john lennon but that would have been interesting him. actually because i saw some of his movies i saw a couple of things that he was doing as well even his son actually uh had an interview and he talked that was many years ago about his dad and he released some of the footage and stuff like that and really showed the father's side of uh, John Lennon, which was nice to see compared to yeah. the other side, the other extreme. You know, side. what always gets me is, is when people go into these people's lives and then they go, well, man, they were messed up. What did you think he was going to be? How did <laughs> yes. you think he was going to, do you think he was going to be okay? He was going to be like everybody else. <laughs> you think he can do create what he created and write like that and be okay no you can't that's that just always cracks me up you know people oh. think that like oh you know they go home and be like everybody else no they're not no you know? no they never did they, and all of them leave what, what you started who they were those dysfunctional things were part of what made them who they are yes and so it's like they're not gonna have normal <laughs> sweet <laughs> sweet lives no no so let me ask you, what was the worst interview you ever done? Um, I interviewed uh, Jeff Mulder, who was Maria Mulder's husband. He was a folk artist and, you know, he's, he's really talented, but he was in a really bad mood and he wasn't really giving me the kind of 
answers I wanted. And some people are not, uh, they're not verbose, you know? So when you ask somebody like, so it, but if you know how to write it, you get into their, their interesting character. It's like Tommy Lee is not a great interview because he's not really verbose, Tommy Lee Jones, but he's interesting because if you connect with the oddities, like, for example, it's like, so Tommy, that was a great win in the Oscar for, you know, JFK, you know, the best supporting actor and stuff like that. He's like, yeah, it was all right. And I'm like, uh, (laughs) sorry. He's like, yeah, we got, yeah. I said, you got that. I managed that's a prominent display in the house. I'm trying to get him to open up more about it. He's like, yeah, we got it up there in the shelf with a, West got a bowling trolley trophy up there and uh, the kids got a couple of things. It's great. <laughs> it's like, like great interview. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's who he is. You that's know, challenging. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's like, well, so it's like, it's not a great interview in terms of opening up and getting different stuff, but it's a great interview because that's who he is. And so mm-hmm. if you capture, like there's a story about Tommy when, uh, this is back when Tommy used to drink. I don't know if Tommy drinks like this anymore, but, um, Probably not. Uh, but back in the in the days of uh, Heaven and Earth, that movie, uh, mm-hmm. and Thailand and uh, Natural Born Killers, uh, Tommy did a couple movies, and then of course JFK. But he did some movies with uh, with Oliver Stone in a row. And so uh, one of the guy one of the guys on the set, his job was to get Tommy to the interviews. Well, because in those days, Tommy would drink a lot, so he wouldn't necessarily be ready for the for the interview or to be on the set. You know, it's like, hey, Tommy, we got to go. We got to get on. So you'd have to go over and get him up. And that's in a on a film. That's one of the jobs assigned to like the shift the uh, the uh, film's doctors. And it's like, you know, I mean, it depends. There's some, but there's always somebody assigned to stuff like that. You know, but a lot of times it's the doctor. So the doctor had to go over and get Tommy up. So he'd go over and he'd get Tommy up, and the doctor told me how, one time he went over to get Tommy, and Tommy was in the bathtub, passed out, you know, all in his clothes, laying there. And so he'd get him up. Okay, now we gotta gotta get dressed in the clothes we're you know we're supposed to wear at the set. And Tommy's like, all right, well, we're all right. I just can't find these shoes, you know. And and the and the, the doctor's like, Tommy, here's a pair of good shoes. They'll they'll be they'll be fine. They'll look great. And Tommy's like, all right, you put those on. And then see if you can help me find this shoe. This is <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, this is funny. <laughs> and it's like, that's, that's how he is. This is funny. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Stuff like oh, that. It's so you said you write uh, some series as well, um, or mm-hmm. co-write some series. Uh, yeah, I'm working. I, I've written a, a a couple of things. I have a a, a television series called Twelve South uh, that I'm hoping to get. It's about an asylum in the 1930s, and the doctor that runs it is very revolutionary and comes up with. I mean, he's not the main doctor, but the guy that really gets things done. You know, the main because he comes up with treatment plans and does stuff that they just didn't do in the 30s. He's really, you know, cutting edge and different. But 
the subtext of the series is that he's slowly going insane and you see flashbacks and and he does weirder and weirder stuff and stuff so it's like so it's it's the inmates running the asylum is kind of what what it really amounts to so i have that i have a couple of movie things um i have a uh, uh a movie uh on ingrid bergman that i wrote a script that i really like uh and i have a couple of other screenplays you know that i'm hoping you to said ingrid berman yeah 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 i wrote about her it's called performance and it's about kind of how her whole life was really a performance she was yes you are actress ever but i mean but she was she was only happy when she was performing and when she was yeah. not in a movie she was still performing i mean you know yes. she had a rough childhood and that mm-hmm. all incorporated and so i that's a, that's something that there's been people interested in it here and there we'll see what happens you know on movies are it's tough to get them made but uh, that's some things i like to do it would be interesting to see this one coming to live actually to life uh yeah it would be because she was a fascinating beautiful woman and it would be nice to be able to see all of the side of her actually and not only the actor part of it but yeah and there's a lot of great stories in her story i mean the making of castle is legendary interesting mm-hmm. stuff you know because they didn't know when they made Casablanca they didn't know it was going to be you know like regarded as one of the best of all time or legendary it was just it was kind of a a, a low budget film that they had half done and had to crank it up it's just everybody rose to the to amazing levels that made the movie I mean they were writing the script while they were in there they didn't know halfway through the movie if she was going to wind up with uh with which guy which one Robert yeah. Bogart you know and that added actually to the tension because you know even the actress didn't know you know so yeah. i mean it, stuff like that it's amazing so all, all that stuff's in the screenplay but yeah oh so that that is fantastic between uh, any new books you're gonna do or anything um yeah on? i'm uh i'm working on a novel right now called up and smoke it's about a uh uh and it's based on a true story you know the I just can't name the names, but I said to write it. No, that's uh, okay. And it's about a guy who uh, uh, was, he was scammed by an ex-NBA player out of 1.2 million in uh, setting up a legalized marijuana company. And it was like, and, and it was in, in Vegas. So it's like, so it's, I mean, it's got some great characters and, you know, yeah. And it's oh, like, that's awesome. I want to see, I really want to do that as a movie too, so. But it's right now it's a book, so I'm working on that. And uh, I also have a, a book about a, uh, uh, a kid that grew up in the ghetto. His mother grew up in the ghetto, and he got in trouble and different issues. And they, uh, his way of getting out was he became, you know, uh, a singer and musical and developing plays and stuff like that. And he wound up becoming the Lion King on Broadway. And so it's a great it's a great story of climbing out of the ghetto and succeeding. So you know, how did you come? Okay. So how did you come up with this one? Well, that one was, uh, the lady found me who's the true story. That was a true story. I, and she found me and, uh, through something of mine she read, but she, she tracked me down, tracked me down. And then, uh, we started working on it and developing. And it's really a lot of it's her story. And so it's, it's by her and I, you know, uh, and I'm not sure what the, the working title has been coming in the Lion King, but I don't know. 
if it's if that's what it's really going to be and uh, i have uh, uh another story about a chicago this is true this is a true story it's about a chicago gang kid uh but not i mean this is like the kid in lion king got in some trouble this this kid was leader of the Latin King. this is a different whole level of intensity you know and all the stuff that 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 it took to be and this is see right there was an era the era now is gang violence is well everybody has a gun everybody's out of control and you know but there was an era before when it was like the warriors the movie the warriors and those kind of things where there were all these street gangs yep and they weren't all just shooting it up crazy. They had, I mean, there was a guy that this is the keeper of the gun. You know, they had yeah. one gun for like eight guys or something like that, you know, or two, for 15, you know, and the way they had their hierarchy and, and we're talking about people like the Latin Kings, the Satan Disciples, the Vice Lords, you know, I mean, there are 25,000 Latin Kings in Chicago and it's just like the amount of structure and stuff they have is like, yeah is amazing and people don't know behind the scenes because nobody really talks so that, that's another book i'm working on so wow that's amazing those are yeah exciting, those are exciting projects it's like wow um yeah. i want to read those actually because this is fascinating to be able to go behind the scene and able to get that information because yes they're always behind gangs there is structure like you go in corporate world there is a structure everywhere right. it doesn't yeah. it's, it's pretty amazing yeah yes really yes they have system that works and to decipher and be able to go in the back of the scenes and understand how it works. That is fascinating. Are you going to think to make it as a movie too or not later That's, on? Yeah. Possibly, or a yeah. series? Maybe a series could be nice. Oh, yeah. Too, actually. Yeah. You know, so much of, uh, uh, so much of the movie television things, uh, has to do with just getting the right people in the right, time you know if it opens up you know it's uh and it can be the best idea ever and get nowhere you know and it can be not so good and, and get, get everywhere anywhere. a lot of it has to do with who you know i mean it's like it goes way back to my first book the platinum rainbow it was like uh, you have to have a plan and yep. and work your career you know ahead on the other hand if if Steven Spielberg's car breaks down in front of your house and he needs to come in and call the, the tow truck. Yeah. Well, you take advantage of that break. You know, exactly. I mean, you, in that yeah. relationship. Yes. it's not like, you know, you know, you're, don't call you the know, cops on him. You don't, you don't, skip, him you don't skip that, you know, <laughs> um, but, you know, so it's, it's controlled plan for success, but also recognizing when fate hands you something or directs you, you know, like the, with the Morrison project with me. I know. That was yes. great. And it was great. Then you at least were open to see that opportunity, which is amazing, actually. How in a million years would you just look yeah, at and it? Yeah, and I would have ne <laughs> never looked in the, I mean, that just, you had to really put me in a situation to do that. Yeah. So the question I have about the, the book, The Rainbow uh, Platinum, um, because you, you mentioned earlier, you decided to write it as a guidebook for people and helping people. Have yeah. you ever heard any feedback from anyone that have utilized your book and say, hey, by the way, I wrote your book. It helped me in my career or move on. Oh, to I've, the got, next yeah, I've got lots of that, but I don't have. Um, 
gotten lots of, of that kind of feedback, but they're mostly people that would have had either no career or yeah, nothing. And then they achieved marginal success. You know, I don't have that feedback from like a superstar or anything like that. I, I, and the odds are they're not going to tell me anyway. You know, once, no, they would not. People, I think their ego, their ego will will not like it. Yeah, I think at once some people point. reach a certain mentality, they don't like to, they don't like to acknowledge, you know, that they were struggling before. It's it's really funny because, you know, really have you ever noticed how actors who succeed, and become really big names, tend to divorce their wives that were with them when they were struggling, and then marry some new girl. Well, it isn't just because there's this new hot girl. It's also because that wife reminds them of when they were nobody. She's the only person that they see that still thinks of them as one a struggling person on the street. And the, the, that's a big mistake because they really yes. need to hold on to somebody that knew them then, you know? Yes. I mean, like, I don't take an extreme example, like Paul McCartney, I, because Paul's pretty together. He's He probably still has some people that knew him when he was nothing. You know, all they might have died by now. But I mean, you know, if you're smart, you still have that kind of link, you know, because there ain't nobody being real with them once they get to that certain level. Nobody is telling them something they don't want to hear. It's just, it's just. That's the problem. A, and that's, yeah. that's the problem for all of the athletes, for all of the actors, for anybody who's famous. Nobody's going to yeah. say to you and everybody's going to praise you. And to me, it's like, no, you should have somebody who's telling you the truth and say, hey, this is something you should not be doing. This is ridiculous. What are you doing? And grump right. them. But, you know, yeah. power and fame brings crazies around you. And that's sad in one way to see this and they're becoming disconnected with the rest of the world. Especially so, now when we have this... Um, <clears throat> fame-driven society mm -hmm. and you have a lot of people excuse me, you have a lot of people who haven't done anything who except became famous and it's like used to you didn't have that you were famous because your music made you famous or your mm -hmm. acting made you famous but i mean you have lots of people that what did they do they didn't do nothing you know i mean i don't i people always pick on the kardashians but example they were they're an example are the new housewives from here or this, you know, or the, this or this or that. It's those reality show people a lot of times. I mean, some of them like the chefs and some of those things are really accomplished enough for them, but some of them are just, they didn't do nothing. And the only thing they have is fame. And mm -hmm. so it's like, so fame becomes like a talent. It's you're respected because you have fame and that doesn't really hold up. It's hollow, you know, and they really need to be connected with people who knew them when, you know, but, Exactly. Yes, exactly. Because I believe that, you know, you get more empowered and more humble when you still have, like you said, you divorce your wife or your husband because now you don't want to see the past, but the past will come back yeah. to you one way or the other. Better to have that person oh, yeah. by your side who has struggled with you than being down for, for a new model. I'm like, sometimes it's not a good thing to get a new model because the new model will bite you in the rear end at the end of the day. Yep. It caused you to lose your objectivity. You know? yes. I mean, you're already losing your objectivity. You need to hold on to what little you have that you can get. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, this is why it's very nice. So who's the most humble person you ever met? Um, or down to earth? Yeah. Huh? Or down to earth. If it's not humble, who was really down to earth? Very humble. Well, I mean, that is still famous, you mean? 
Yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, there are lots of people I know that are really good people who don't care about fame and doing that stuff. Um, but uh, there's a couple of people that uh, I don't know if you know who Bill Myers is. He's a writer. Yes. Who, uh, uh, and he writes a lot of Christian books and he's created yeah. some series and, you know, and he's been my friend forever. And he's, he's a real humble guy, you know, he's a really nice guy, you know, and uh, tries to do what's right all the time, you know, and he's not, never gets caught up in himself. Uh, but in terms of, it's sort of, it's in, in, in terms of like, in one way, you know, people have this impression of, of Frank Zappa and Frank is, Frank was, you know, really arrogant and all this stuff. He also never did drugs and he never was, you know, he was not like the person people thought he was. And so, I mean, he never said anything. He would tell you what he really felt, you know, we tell you the truth, you know, and it's like, so there's that kind of humility where people are not, uh, disguising themselves for for a certain kind of certain kind of thing but um jack lemon was very humble nice guy and you you know i mean he was a legend you know uh, his, i mean he won a couple of oscars he was you know his films were really something but jack was real down to earth and nice so i i'd probably put jack lemon among famous people okay. so let me ask you the question what kept you grounded because you know you moved from nashville you went to l.a you're dealing with the fame and famous people you are now all of the doors opening for you what kept you grounded your wife well, yeah i would say you know my wife we've been married 47 years and also uh the faith i mean she is a strong person of faith and she i mean i i grew up catholic but i kind of thought of god as a roving fist i mean particularly from where i the perishing people I was connected with, you know, so I didn't see God as love. And yet Debbie was, you know, part of a church where, uh, where that was more evident. And when we went to start going to the vineyard back in 1978, when we first moved to California, uh, it was like, I couldn't believe it. And I was Ken Gullickson ran the vineyard back then. And, you know, Dylan went there. A lot of people went there, but any, but it was, it just exuded love. You know, it was just a place where you just saw God completely different. I had seen God as very judgmental. And after that, uh, and because, you know, Debbie and I have been together all these years, uh, I think that helped me ground, being grounded more than anything else. Well, that's that's nice to hear you've been... And my blue-collar roots, you know, I'm an Irish. Yeah. I, you know, I, did, I don't know if this is... Holy crap! Cool. <laughs> that was, that, that, hey, you have to tell me how you got this one. Oh <laughs> uh, well, I, I just, you know, I and it was my kids are like, you you wouldn't let us get tattoos when we were kids, yeah, and all like, oh, this kind of stuff. I'm like, yeah, I I told my daughter, you can get a tattoo, just got to get the same temporary tattoo for a month. That's all. Keep changing it. Keep the same one on there for a month, and then you can get one. They don't move around. They don't jump around, you know? So it's like, but you never could go through the discipline that it takes to do that. So that's why, you know, have, I mean, she got one when she was older. But but with this, I thought it was like a way in which it explains so much about my character and particularly a lot of 
stuff, romanticism, the excesses, you know, the, the temper, you know, the, the rebelness, you know, and I'm like, there's so many things people can say, oh, well, you're this, and I can just turn around and point, you know? Yeah, yep, exactly. You know, I was a blue collar factory kid, you know, and it's like, yeah. it's different kind of, different kind of world, you know? So, so when we got it, Debbie's like, who gets a tattoo when they're sixties, you know? And it was like, I was like, well, we don't have to worry about what it looks like when it gets old, you know? <laughs> don't have to worry about any of that. And I remember going to this guy and I was like, could you do this tattoo um, thing? I said, well, what would it, he goes, he, I said, what would it cost? And he says, for you, nothing. If I could tell people I did it. Exactly. He's not going to charge you nothing. I just want to, I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, but it's like, um, I don't know. I felt like the time was right then. You know, it was something that it, it's, it sort of kept me humble. You know, I mean, it, it, other times in my life, it would have been a, a vehicle to be arrogant, connected on, but I, and I never had one during that time. I just got one when I thought, yeah, you know, I need to be reminded of this. So, well, uh, that's that's fantastic. It seems like you get a very interesting life. And the fact that you're still married with the same woman, then you two seems extremely connected and the relationship really kept you grounded is is fantastic to hear in my book because it's not you know marriage is something is sacred and 47 years it's 40 that's a lot 40 is long i was i was only five when we got married and uh (laughs) that's awesome that was the best marriage ever i got a scoop yeah so no, but that's fantastic. So how did you met actually? Um, actually, we had a, a a mutual friend, but we met at a uh, seeing a band at a bowling alley, a bar at a bowling alley, and there was and my friend, she was there, and I was with my other friend, and she knew my friend. That was how we connected. Oh, that's like, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she became a groupie. No. No, no? just no, because I really wasn't. I mean, I was. Uh, I mean, she knew who I was, but you know, it's I had that kind of fame. Then it's like I still kind of have that fame now, where it's like I got to explain to you who I am before you know who I am, before you think I'm famous. And then it's like, oh yeah, you're famous. No, I'm not really. I'm, I, I'm actually I'm famous to a, in a certain section of society. I'm famous among doors people, and I'm famous among you know. Well, let's and and what is nice is you're famous for what you're doing, but you're still the human being than who you are, which is awesome. And I think it's nice to see this. Uh, what is the what do you want to continue to work on? Because I know you got a bunch of projects, but what are the do you have something that's close to your heart that you really want to do, or have you done everything you always wanted to do? Well, there are. I mean. Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, there are the projects like I have a novel called The Coming of the Walrus, and it's pretty esoteric, pretty bizarre, you know. And I knew when I was writing it that it was like, well, it's not going to make a whole lot of money because this is not for everybody. I mean, there are people who really like it if I had a way to get it to them, you know. I mean, people connected with it. 
but in general it's not like a publisher is going to hand me a bunch of money to do this because it's too strange you know uh and i was i had to work on that in pieces because once you become a professional writer you start you you understand the monetary aspect of everything you do so you know you write a sentence and you're like well that'll cost me some money if i keep that in there you know i mean it, it yeah. just becomes it becomes a thing you know and it's like so i had to sneak up on the coming of the walrus i'd come home and you know i'd been out partying or do something and i'd write a chapter you know or a half a chapter and then later i'd do something else and i'd be in a mood and i'd, I'd write a half and then pretty soon when i have and they would they'd be they wouldn't be in order they'd just be all over the yeah. place little stories i linked in and then when i had enough of those i linked them together and by then then it was like then i had a could write the, the whole thing but uh things like that i the, my thing now is i would really like to uh do some screenplays uh and there's a couple book projects i wanted to do i i think that young people uh i i tell people you know because I, I do a lot of ministry work and I run a mentoring program and I work with teens in trouble, which is all, of them. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, yeah, people yes. are like, yeah. And it's, it's like a tough period to grow up. And I have a book uh, about that, that uh, I haven't been able to get a publisher for, but I wanted to get, I wanted to write about how difficult it is. And part of the thing, uh, well, I, I've been calling it blood sacrifice, and it's how corporate America sacrificed the next generation, or how corporate America sold out the next generation. Yeah. And what it is, it's the 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 pushing of you know alcohol uh, and the whole consumerism mentality that is pushed on teens when they're like 12 years old. You know, teenage girls, you know, uh, buying, trying to, you know be sexy at 10, you know, I mean, girls, it's like all, all those issues. And that's all society pushing on them and it's pushing on them for money. I had a, a friend of mine, Richard Keel, he used to be uh, Jaws in the James Bond movies, big guy. And Richard, Richard's passed now, but he told me once how uh, uh, Malt Liquor came to him and I wanted him to do a commercial. The commercial was going to be when the uh, uh, he's in a bar drinking, he's got those metal teeth that he has in the yep. jaws, James Bond, the James Bond movies, and the bull busts in the bar and growls like in those those slit small liquor commercial. He turns around, and growls at the bull, and the bull runs away. You know, so it's a good commercial. You know, and we he turned it down. So they doubled the offer. He turned it down again. They doubled the offer again, and he went to see the vice president of slit small liquor in Chicago, and he said. Uh, what do you want me for? So bad for? I mean, I'm not. I'm. I'm a character. I'm not even a lead actor. I'm a character actor. Now you're offering me a lot of money for this. And they said because you test off the charts with 13 year old boys. And he's like, Yeah, based on research. I'm not doing it. You know. And it's. I mean, are they targeting you? Yeah, they're targeting you. Yeah. You know, 20% of beer sales are to underage kids. Yeah. 20%. It's not a question of not targeting. They're definitely targeting them. And the problem yeah. is. These kids grow. I mean, and you just you, you know watch Super Bowl commercial and tell me it's not geared mm -hmm. to you know twelve year old boy. You know, it's just like, and that becomes a, a real issue. You know, uh, it's it's amazing, and 
people don't really realize that it's like people think, oh, well, it's a rite of passage to drink and it's this and this and that. But these kids are getting killed. And 50% of teenage deaths are related to like accidents that are beer and alcohol caused. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, there's direct links to these things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, nobody. I don't think anybody, everybody pretends not to be aware of it, not to deal with it. I, you know, and I've tried to approach some of the leading, uh, uh, you know, shows uh, where they, where they expose and talks about those kinds of things, and they're never interested. You know, I mean, because that is too powerful of a lobby. You can't, you can't, you know. Yep. Negate the the beer industry if you want to have promotion and advertising for stuff. Exactly, so, that's the problem yeah. right there. It's yeah. yeah. I'd like to do that book, uh, and there's a couple other things like that, and there's some screenplays that I'd like to do that I think have a strong message. But the, you know, it, you have to have power in that arena. You know, I mean, I I can do uh, I can do books that I, I want to do, um, mm -hmm. but I can't do anything. You know, I can't just do any book. And, you know, there's a lot of books that they're like, they won't do, you know. So that that's part of the issue, you know. I mean, I I have a lot of freedom as an artist, you know. Yes. But you're still, you're still, it, there's very few people that can do anything they want artistically, you know. I mean, it's, it's well, a handful, whether it's movies or books or anything else. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a suggestion right there. You're going to say, you're my cop. But have you ever thought to write those books? And uh, sorry, my dogs are barking. Uh, okay. Have you ever thought about reading those books, but not publishing them yet? But after you passed away, have them published, actually? Well, you got to be one powerfully motivated writer to do that. <laughs> I don't it's know. Like, I'm thinking, you know, if you no, I, I mean, because they're you know hard. I mean? to write. They're, I mean, they're not like they're not easy projects, you know, I know in terms of you're interviewing people. And if you're going to think if you're going up against like the beer industry and stuff, there's, you know, you're going to you're going to expect resistance all along the way. And it's like so it's hard to do it and have that be something you're not getting any money for you know and then when you then even if you're not getting money for it if if you go like well i don't know if it's going to be published like i would self-publish it myself which i've done in a few projects but i can't that's not going to get reach the people I, I the whole point is to reach people with the message and i'm not going to reach anybody self-publishing because i i'm I can't, I'm not that guy anymore. I like the Platinum Rainbow was Bob and I working together and it was in a different era and everybody saw the value of the book. And yeah. Now to like the push and the grind and the boot, uh, I don't think I have it in me, you know, but I, I, I have enough of outlines and chapters and stuff that, you know, it's there. I don't know. Um, but it's, yeah, it's tough when it comes to, now when it comes to screenplays, I got screenplays that I've written that I'm not sure will ever get done, but I've written them anyway, and maybe someday people will find them or do them. And I have, uh, I have notes and things on the, some of these book projects, but and I have like the Walrus is, it might as well be written and not known because um, you know I self-published it and how did anybody knows about it? And it's really hard to promote a novel, you know. I mean, 
the way the reason the platinum rainbow was successful is we had a high target audience it's like okay we know who we're looking for we're looking for yeah. musicians who want to succeed mm-hmm. in music guys who want to make it in music business so that's music stores it's music schools that's you know uh people that re- we had we got made deals for ads with all the major music publications where they traded out the advertising. So guitar player would give us, you know, like a half page ad and some of the money would come to them. The orders yeah. would come into them, piggyback advertising and per inquiry advertising. We got so much coverage doing it like that, that we were able to reach that audience and it took off, you know, but when you, when you got something as big as a novel, magazines don't do that, you know, cause they don't know what the audience is going to be, but okay. you know, you, you never know. I will be you. I will prepare them. You never know. Because if you get them, you never know what, you know, perfect synchronicity can come along. And yes, I agree. I agree. You know, it's, uh, that's the, you know, it's, it's really trusting the fate in the way of the world. And I, I chip away, you know, chip away at some things. But when it's something like that, which requires well, a lot of research. You need a lot of legal advice on it, you know, if you're going to attack beer companies and those statistics change and you got, you know, and so it's like, I really need a team behind me that, you know, is going to help fight all that. That's why I need a solid Mm -hmm. publisher. But you never know. You never know. It might happen one day. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Other things happen that I didn't think were going to happen, you know, so. Well, that's awesome. Well, that's wonderful. But it seems like you're doing very well with all of your projects and you have your hands full. (laughs) Any vacation? Because it seems like you work all of your life, but you didn't ever take any vacation in between everything I've done. Yeah. um, But I mean, I I get bored pretty quick, you know, so it's like I can, you know, I I don't mind. I like getting away for weekends or maybe. Maybe I could do a week, but, you know, I ain't doing three weeks in Europe or something. I, you know, I can't. I I've never survived the mentality. You know, <laughs> we went to Ireland. We went to Ireland for 10 days. Good. And it was great. It, it was a stretch for me. Um, but it was like, in, you know, it just. Honey, yeah. when are we going back home? I want to go home. I want well, to work. Like, oh, I'm going to be working on my laptop, you know, or then it's yeah. like, that's not, you know, you're trying to, you're like, no, I'm not going to do any of that, you know. But if you have, you know, if you really love your work, then, you know, you, vacations from it are not that easy. So. No, it's not. But at least you took your work with you and you can do it somewhere else to give you some inspiration too. So Sometimes, I think it's. Yeah. I yeah. think it's pretty good. So, wow, that's amazing. So, no, but, you know, it's been interesting to talking to you and know more about it. was about really great talking wow. to you. I thank was, you for doing that. Yo, oh, no. And I'm curious to know, you know, I will follow what you're doing and what's coming out on TV and books. And we probably will do another episode as well. But it, it's been amazing to hear your story. And I know a lot of people are going to be listening to it and hear how you got it all started and it's nice because it gives ideas for people, you know, not like you said, not everything was roses and bonbons, but way of perfect synchronicity, get going, get moving, got you where you are today. And listening that, you know, even though you had managers, people telling you to do what to do, you decided to just do whatever you wanted to do. So to me, it's a good inspiration for others as well, because sometimes when you're in the the show business or wherever you are, 
and people are guiding you because they want the winning, um, uh, what do you call it, the winning horses at the end of the day. Yeah. They kind of put you in a category, like you said, they try to put you in a box and keep you there. And it's very difficult to get out of it. So being able to see how versatile you are and what you have done, uh, bring a more better dimension to it. And I see a lot of people, the songwriter, uh, singers or actors who are just classified for one thing at all and not all. And I remember there was Farrah Fawcett, who mm -hmm. she, you know, Charlie's Angels, and they make her do some cutesy movie. And she went to a different um, arena, which was more drama. A lot mm -hmm. of people liked her at that point because they felt, oh, no, she's not that good, which she was pretty good, actually. Yeah, but she people, was. People had that image that, oh, she has the good all-American. She look. had to do stuff like, like the burning bed that broke broke her stereotype and then you know yes. in order to get out of it and it's difficult i knew her yeah it it, it is uh uh it's it's hard when it comes to career guidance like i my first agent who's passed away a long time ago but he was a guy who saw your career and all the possibilities and looked at it that now the agents that you get are just interested in how one what next project is how much money they can make on the next project and they don't and then it they're all driven by money you know what i mean i mean you go like well here, here's a project where it would be much more redeeming and say a lot more and be a lot better and the agent is more interested in the project that will make him 10 more dollars you know i mean where do you draw the line you know it's like i understand you got to make money but there's a, there's a point where just you know other things matter and it's really hard to get even even career wise, and it's 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 hard to get people that have the the old guys have it, you know. But yeah, those guys are gone now. So yeah, and that, hard to get people that's too bad. So it's it's nice to hear your story and and really show when people are going to be listening to it, just realizing that hey, you did what you wanted to do, and you had to think twice on some of the things you're saying or whatever. But the project you had were something that you really wanted to to achieve. So for me. It gives an open and for people who are going to be listening to it, the idea that I'm still the master of my life and I should be taking the decision. I maybe have hearing feedback from managers, but at the end of the day, I should be taking the decision what I want to right. do. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that's, that's, I think, the hardest spot when you're being influenced by others who want to dangle the little shiny object because their intention is to get more money so they're happier. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it, yeah, it does. So, well, let's keep in touch. I appreciate this. Yes. Good thank time. you so much for, uh, for being part of the show today and we'll talk to you later and hopefully Michael will feel better too. Okay. <laughs> the rest of the thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.